Well, hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Zippy the Wonder Snail. I am so glad once again to be here with my co-commissar, Jason. Hey, Jason, how are you? Hey, I'm good, Tim. It is so good to be back together, and we are going to give a gold glove winning performance today as we rip through a whole bunch of topics, uh, just like one of our very favorite baseball players. Right, comrade? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Well, uh, you said with a gold glove, but let's start with the National League MVP award with Paul Goldschmidt. Uh, Paul Goldschmidt has won the National League MVP award, so... Uh, that's his first, uh, MVP of his career and he's 34 years old. It's rare to do that your first time and be 34. So good for Paul. He had a fantastic season, um, 35 home runs. And I think it was 115 RBIs. So, um, what a great season and over 300 on the batting average. So. Uh, nearly had a shot at the Triple Crown, uh, but, but couldn't quite bring it home there. Uh, kind of fell off at the end of the season, but was so far above everyone the rest of the season that that carried him through. And uh, our great defensive third baseman, Nolan Arenado, in addition to winning the Platinum Glove as the best defender in the National League overall, he won his 10th consecutive Gold Glove at third base. And finished third in the MVP voting. So our Cardinals chalked up some awards here in this offseason, and they'll be ready to go for next year. Yes, what what an incredible way to wrap up a, a season that was really spectacular all the way up until that all-too-short end. Uh, congratulations to Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado, and, and really to the whole team. It was truly a, a great effort all around. And I believe I heard, in fact the team as a whole got a gold glove. Is that correct, comrade? That's right. They, uh, I don't know if that's a new thing, but um, the Cardinals won uh, the team gold glove in the National League, and the New York Yankees, of all teams, won the uh, team gold glove in the American League. So the two best franchises in the history of Major League Baseball took home those defensive awards as, as a team. And that doesn't surprise me. Uh, defensively, the Cardinals were absolutely incredible, and the Yankees benefited from former Cardinal Harrison Bader taking over in center field for them. So I'm not surprised by that at all. Yes, so well-deserved all around, and I'm certainly happy to see that that worked out for for Harrison as well. Um, you know, it doesn't seem quite right that he's not here. Uh, but Oh, one thing, we don't have a lot of time on this topic, but, Comrade, before we get into the rest of our our agenda for today. Did you see the speculation, and this is something I know I've been hoping, and it's one of those things sort of like I was hoping for Albert last year, but I actually saw some speculation this week from one of the the, the sports writers, and I'm blanking out on who, but one of the ones she writes for um, MLB.com, speculating maybe there's a possibility of Matt Carpenter coming back to the Cardinals next year. Did you see that? Uh, I did briefly see that. I'm I'm a little bit surprised. I don't know um, if St. Louis and the park effects um, in Bush Stadium would be helpful for Matt Carpenter. He did clearly uh, figure some things out for the Yankees, but he um, uh, but he is benefiting from the short porch and right field in Yankee Stadium, and so Bush Stadium may not be the best fit. Although 
coming back to his old team, his first team, the team that drafted him and gave him a shot. Maybe we could score some more nostalgia points there like we did this year with Albert. So who knows? Yeah, I, I would love to see uh, one more uh, 2011 World Series reunion type thing happen with uh, Carpenter coming back and Wayno and him uh, going out in style together, perhaps. That would be that would be a great deal of fun. Um, I, I hated to see him go. As much as it seemed necessary last year, I hated to see him go. Yeah. I think that that would be a great uh, great thing for this upcoming season. And let's throw Wayne right in real quick. Uh, he is extremely extremely likely, barring an injury, to um, to crack the two hundred win barrier, and therefore uh, merits serious serious consideration for Cooperstown the Hall of Fame. So that's some some more things to look for. I mean, the Cardinals and the Hall of Fame seems like a birthright at this point for a lot of a lot of our Cardinals, but uh, that, that would be great if Wayno could sneak in there. So, uh, yeah, it'll be a great season coming up in 23, and we'll get to it. Let's get to it. So, I'm all ready for it. So we just wrapped up the baseball season. We wanted to wrap up another season that we almost uh, approach oftentimes in our country for better or for worse as a sport, and that would be politics. We had the midterm elections since our last episode, and we need to revisit it. Uh, Things went interestingly, uh, actually, as we're recording, and we are now uh, well over a week past voting, the close of voting, we're still waiting on the returns from some elections, but we're, we're getting a pretty good picture of where things are other than in Georgia. And so, comrade, uh, you made some predictions last time. We need to visit those. You predicted, do you remember what you predicted? I, I should have a clip queued up here. You, you predicted a blue wave. I, I didn't predict a blue wave, but I did predict <laughs> that the Democrats would hold the House and the Senate. Um and they did not hold the House. The Republicans are going to take the House. Just barely. It was very, very close. I think they're going to have 219 seats uh, when it's all said and done for the Republicans. And then, what is that, 214 or 213 for the Democrats? Uh, I can't do math. Uh, yeah, something like that. Never mind. Anyway. Uh, but, so, um, but... Uh, Kevin McCarthy is going to get a significant challenge for Speaker of the House. So if it is extremely significant, you could see a move to a compromise choice like even Liz Cheney, I was hearing things, even though she's not an elected, she won't be an elected person in Congress coming up here. Um, But to see a compromise choice would be incredible. Unlikely, um, but it could happen. So, so anyway, the Republicans are going to take the House, and the Democrats are going to hold the Senate. The only question is whether they hold the Senate with 50 votes or if they get uh, Raphael Warnock down in Georgia as the 51st vote. So, as you know, that runoff is uh, December 6th. Uh, I would say that Warnock is favored, um, and only... The libertarian in that race, 
I think it's fair to say prevented Warnock from getting to his 50% because he was at like 49.4, maybe it's 49.5 at this point. So, but that's the question. Will those libertarian voters stay libertarian or will they support the Republican Herschel Walker? Who knows? Um, my instinct says Warnock has the advantage in the runoff, but we don't know. Uh, so that'll be an interesting race to watch. Yeah, uh, that may actually be the most important thing that we see come out of this election is what happens in that race. Because, well, as you noted, uh, whether it's 50 or 51, the Democrats will have the majority in the Senate again by nature of uh, President, Vice President, rather Harris, uh, Vice President Harris being president of the Senate and ta- casting the tie-breaking vote, um, 51 would feel very different than 50, I think. Because if you have a 50-50 split, you have all that power fall on Senator Manchin. And Joe Manchin has made it very clear that he's a different kind of Democrat. A uh, few things that he wants to see f- uh, for sure, which is smaller government, at least somewhat smaller government. Uh, he's at least somewhat pro-life and he loves the filibuster. He doesn't want that to go away. And if we get up to 51, it's going to get much more likely, I think, that you see a shift in in the agenda being pushed through the Senate towards a a much more progressive nature, at least what they'll attempt to do. Um, Because his his ability to be the the stop block will evaporate. Right, and I think it goes deeper than that because... If they get 51 votes in the Senate, that means that all the committees in the Senate will be majority Democrat. When it's 50-50, then the rules stipulate that the committees have to be dead even as well. So 51 votes gets majority committees, um, and 50 votes gets dead even committees. So that could be potentially significant. I, um, You know, there, there were times when I was frustrated by Joe Manchin's um, blocking the agenda early on. But as you noted, in the ways his ideology is different from many Democrats, he also appeals to me, being a conservative Democrat in in West Virginia, um, within hailing distance of an actual pro-life position. Obviously, I support that. Um, So, may... You know, in a certain way, I would say may their tribe increase in terms of Joe Manchin, um, especially on the Democratic side. Um, so we'll see how he fits himself into the new Congress. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it'll be positive, though. I, I, I was hopeful at the results. I, you know, sort of as a, I'm not an outsider. I'm, a, I'm a good citizen. I try to be a voter. Um, although I didn't vote in these midterms, um, but I feel somewhat like an outsider or an observer. Um, and I saw many, uh, many opportunities for, for coming together from the, from the Democrats taking the Senate again. Um, and, uh, but there's possibilities with the house being in Republican ends as well, because the, um, some of the more progressive stuff that maybe the Senate would try to do, or even that that a Democratic House would try to do, is not going to go anywhere. So gridlock um, 
with respect to the extremes in both parties is probably desirable in many ways. And I feel like even though um, it could be argued that Joe Biden um, has charted a more left course, if he um, if he's sort of gridlocked by the two parties sharing power in the Congress, then that may be um, what the true Joe Biden would want. Because he's a deal maker, he's a sort of a nonpartisan hearkening back to a an older age of um, cooperation between the parties. Um, so it, it may give him, him an opportunity to be more moderate and yet be able to blame it on the Republicans um, and still shore up his base that way um, without having to go too far to the left. So there's some interesting possibilities there. I'm blathering on. Why don't you talk? <laughs> Well, I think uh, th- that's sort of my hopeful takeaway. And I'll say, as you know, I, I try to avoid being particularly partisan on-, on this show as a pastor. I'll say this. I l- like gridlock when it comes to the government because both parties, as particularly as we see them in their current iteration, ha- they do a lot of things that deeply concern me. And yet, when they're forced to work together and find some kind of consensus, there's generally a little bit more hope that maybe they're doing something that isn't absolutely crazy. And so, if we can get some gridlock here, a good gridlock, and yet all of them need to get reelected in two or four years or thereabouts, and so uh, there's some motivation to strike some deals, I think we might see some good things. One thing I'll say as a pro-life person that worries me a little bit, uh, particularly if the Senate gets to 51 votes on the Democratic side, is I think we can rest assured on the on the Senate side they're going to pass legislation trying to codify Roe or go even further than Roe uh, on the Senate side if they get to 51 votes, because then you eliminate likely the filibuster and or at least it will fall all on cinema to, to stop it from going away at that point. Um, so then that comes to what happens in the house. And my concern is if you have a a Senate that's willing to do such things and the house is being governed by the pro-life party, ostensibly at least, uh, but by such a razor thin margin, it certainly wouldn't be hard for some of the pro-choice or squishy Republicans in the house to, to veer and possibly side with the Democrats on such legislation. So I, I think, you know, I'm really rooting uh, for gridlock as much as possible because I think that's the best thing that we can hope for. Um, it worries me if, if we get out of gridlock. We still have we still have people like Susan Collins, the pro-choice Republican in the Senate, um, and obviously all the Democrats would be pro-choice with the possible exception of Joe Manchin, depending on what light you want to look that look at that in. But I would also say that in terms of codifying Roe permanently, there is not, even on the Democratic side, considering them alone, I don't think there is enough votes to codify Roe. So even if the Senate wanted to do that, I don't think they could do that. And I really don't think it's going anywhere in the House. I think my concern in the House is not the squishy Republicans as much as if Speaker, uh, it, let's assume 
that Kevin McCarthy retains the leadership position on the Republican side, if he lets the sort of the extremist wing in his party go go run amok without him reining them in, then he could bring the Republican House into disrepute. And then in two years, the Democrats could take the House again, and then they could have a pro-choice majority in the House. So that would be my concern, is that some of the extremist elements in the Republican Party just bring the party down in such a way that a pro-choice majority is elected in two years. Yeah. Um, McCarthy seems like a wild card in this, and I'm not quite sure how to read him. I mean, on the one hand, there seems to be moments where he flirts with the more extreme elements of um, of the party, and then there are other times where he seems like an almost sickening, yeah, I can't speak, sickeningly establishment-type figure. Uh, I, I suspect maybe the right way to read McCarthy is he's the politician's politician, and I... I I sometimes doubt that he has a whole lot of principle of his own so much as whatever gets him into power, um, which, you know, that could, that's true of many politicians, but it leaves a big open question on exactly how he'll play out, I think, over these next two years as Speaker. Um, I'm, I'm curious about this, this seeming uh, break in the mega ranks um, where you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, of all people, who have who has now decided to support Kevin McCarthy, and then a lot of her supporters are angry at her for that. I'm curious what exactly is going on there, what kind of deals are happening behind the scenes, and I think as those sorts of things clear up, it will tell us a lot about what kind of speakership uh, McCarthy is going to give us. I think given the results, I think more than likely we'll get an establishment McCarthy because the sort of the extreme version of the Republican Party kind of cost them this election in some ways, even though they took the House. A lot of those uh, MAGA candidates, if you will, uh, went down in flames in the Senate, went down in flames in the governor's races, etc. So there's a move by the Republican electorate to be more if not moderate, then at least um, pragmatic in in their approach. Yes. So I, I'm betting on I'm betting on uh, moderate McCarthy more than more than crazy McCarthy. Yeah, I, I think if he's looking towards trying to maintain power for some time, that would definitely be where he should land. It seemed like, like you said, it. it the election seemed to speak to voters' desire for something different than what we've been doing for the last few years. Um, uh, when you look at, for example, lots of people pointed, I think this is for good reason to the results in Florida, um, people didn't necessarily turn away from pro-life candidates or even those who who tend to strike many of the populist tones of the current Republican Party, someone like DeSantis, um, but they seem to turn away from the people who who were primarily fixated on election denial um, and some of the more extreme aspects of MAGA. Um, likewise, you look in Georgia and you see the re-election of the Republicans um, involved right in the epicenter of the storm two years ago who stood for election integrity. 
as opposed to um, what President Trump was was shooting for there. Um, yeah, that's, it, that's Raffensperger, and that's a couple of other people, and uh, Governor Kemp. Yes, uh, yeah. Uh, who, who certified the election there, so um, they won handily. Yeah, that seems to me to speak to what people are looking for. They, I, I don't think, as much as they've made it out to be, I don't think the big story this election cycle was Roe v. Wade and, and America's desire for open abortion at any moment. I, I think what it was really speaking to is that Americans would like to move a bit towards the center and would like politicians who spend a lot more time getting stuff done and a lot less time throwing out this, this really um, over-the-top rhetoric. Right. I, I, I completely agree there. Uh, again, very long segment, but I want to throw something in. Uh, just announced today that Speaker Pelosi is retiring. Yes. So, so someone else will be the Democratic leader in the House. That's something to watch for. Even Standing Warrior is quite old, so I think we're going to get somebody a lot younger maybe on the Democratic side. Uh, and who knows? Who knows? That could well, be. What if AOC becomes the leader of the Democrats? Wouldn't that be something? That would be something. Um, I, I might just leave that there. That would be something. <laughs> Ooh, doesn't the, all that political mumble jumbo just drive you crazy? You just need to escape from it. And what better thing to do when you need to escape from all that? then visit anagrammal.com. It's a word-a-day game from faithtree.com, A-N-A-G-R-A-M-L-E.com, or you can just go to faithtree.com slash games and play our word-a-day games. It's a great way to distract yourself from all the chaos and stress of life, have a little bit of fun, and it will take you into the scripture as you do so. So check it out, anagrammal.com. Well, comrade, we we are going to talk about much more than just politics this time around. Uh, but before we move into other topics, we wanted to hit one more political topic, which is the Respect for Marriage Act that has just apparently cleared its way through the Senate. It, it's a modification of a bill that went through the House earlier this year, um, and it sort of is the anti-DOMA or the anti. Defense of Marriage Act from the 90s that that codified heterosexual marriage as the standard for the United States. It had been assumed up to that point, but it codified that. Now we have a bill working its way through our legislature that would codify same-sex marriage as legal, and not in the sense of the Supreme Court declaring it that way, but rather the legislature declaring it that way. And so what do you make of this Respect for Marriage Act? Um, let, let me approach this from two directions, from a political direction, and then I'm going to bring, uh, my, uh, moral reflections, my ethical reflections into it. So from a political perspective, it's totally rational what's happening because normally if you have a Supreme Court decision, Congress likes to codify whatever the Supreme Court has ruled and made the law. Since they are the legislature, they like to come along and say, okay, here's the law that supports the ruling that was already made by the Supreme Court. So 
from from a purely um, process aspect of the political situation, it makes sense that that's what's happening. Um, but let me shift to the moral. I am a natural law theorist, so I'm going to say that the government of the United States has no right to codify anything other than marriage as between one man and one woman. They have no right to do that. So, um, to me, it's null and void. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that um, that I'm gonna go down there with pitchforks and you know and do something crazy, but it does mean uh, that reality has not changed, and the way the way the world is, how God sees the world is, marriage is between a man and a woman. That's what marriage is, and that will never change. And given the fact that it is natural law, that means um, picking up Romans chapter 1, verse 20, uh, the attributes of God being clearly seen. That means that every person, no matter who they are and where they are religiously, they should be able to discern that, in fact, this is wrong um, with their natural reason. Now, us theologically, we, we would come down in different places on the place of reason um, and the ability to use it in certain situations, but it can be clearly seen that marriage is between man and a woman, um, and the, the government has no right to say otherwise. So uh, that's how I feel on it. It's probably not going to be a popular take, depending on who you're talking to, but that's where I am. So null and void. Yeah. So here's here's the thing that I've found kind of interesting. We've seen some actual conservative support for this modified version or, or, or bills like it. Uh, there's been some work in Utah in particular, and it seems like the LDS, uh, the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, um, have had an interesting place in all this. They're generally socially conservative, but they've supported this sort of compromise legislation, as it's called. Uh, Mitt Romney obviously plays a part in in this particular bill. Um, and, and that really comes out of one particular aspect, which is in the Senate version of the bill, unlike the House bill, it codifies also the right of conscience for the church and other nonprofits to not participate in this. And so it seems like the the argument, at least, is that if the if if the Supreme Court has already made same-sex marriage legal, and it doesn't seem likely that that will change. Although certainly Democrats are arguing for this under on the basis that Justice Thomas had hinted that maybe the decision should be revisited. Uh, but it doesn't seem likely it's going to change. Um, it seems like the religious conservatives who are participating in this are coming at it from the angle that, well, we're not going to turn back the United States on this issue. It's not going to back off of it, but maybe we can at least make it easier to exist under it. And, and um, you know, it's a very pragmatic approach, but but I... I I think it's an interesting question. If you can't get society to come back to where you are, uh, what things can we do as Christians to at least make it so that it's easier for us to continue to do our work in that society that no longer is aligned with us on an issue? Right, and I would say, you know, in agreement with a lot of what you just said, um, for there to be legislative moves to protect 
religious liberty, properly speaking, is a good thing. Um, Lemon v. Kurtzman is in the trash based on the Kennedy, Kennedy decision that was handed down earlier. That was that coach in Oregon who was praying at midfield. And even though he did some weird stuff, um, the school district had put themselves up as the sole defender of the establishment clause, and, and the court was like, you don't need to do that. Um, the establishment clause is meant to serve the free exercise clause and not for them to be in opposition, and that was Justice Alito. So it's good that religious liberty is being recognized and people are moving to protect it. Um, but it sort of seems like a lot of politicos on this particular issue are just wanting it to go away. Like if they do this, if they do this, uh, they vote for this act that, that the uh, that the activism will cool down and that they won't have to worry about um, whatever the next frontier of sexual politics is. But the fact is, that's not the way activism works and not the way activism has worked in terms of these issues. So there's still going to be people pushing for other things um, and folks on the progressive side of things are not going to be satisfied with this act and where it leaves us. So I wouldn't say that I'm too excited about it, but sure, protecting religious liberty is a good thing. Yeah. The the one thing I, I'd like to see that is lacking, it feels like to me, in the religious liberty section is it provides a pretty nice broad protection for, for churches, for universities, uh, for it has a whole list of different breakdowns, but basically any kind of parachurch ministry. What it doesn't seem to do, though, is address perhaps the, the religious liberty issue that's been at the forefront of all this over the last few years, which is what happens to those who, we might say, create speech as part of their work. Uh, so in particular, the bakers, the photographers, the others that are not working for a church but have religious convictions and seem to be being drawn into this whole matter on should do they should they be compelled to photograph a same-sex wedding should they be compelled to make a cake that has two grooms on it uh those sorts of things and it doesn't address that in any way which is sort of disappointing to me because while i'm very glad that they're protecting churches right to continue to stand for traditional marriage uh, without losing tax status and so on. Um, the the issue we've been seeing litigated the most, and the one that seems to be in most need of clarity, is what are we going to do to protect free speech rights for those who, because of a religious conviction, feel like they're actually violating their conscience if they have to create artwork, essentially, seemingly in support of something that they are against. Not against the people, but against the act. And I, I do wish this would have addressed that. So um, I'm going to come at it a little bit of a different direction. It seems like this new um, new act, and I can't even remember the name of it, but, um, but this new act, there's a certain institutional bias. So you're addressing, hey, they're protecting churches, they're protecting ministries, they're protecting universities. But the the very issue here, and this goes back to the Obama years, um, is the public practice of faith 
by individuals. So it's one thing to say that someone who's working for a church or working for a ministry or uh, working with some private group that is uh, at least loosely connected to a university won't be forced to do things. But as individuals, um, are we allowed to practice our faith publicly or are we simply protected when we're doing something that is explicitly religious conduct? And there's still a big gap there. Um, Ross, do thought some uh, uh, 10 years ago now had a column in the New York Times and he called it defining religious liberty down. And he was saying that the Obama administration was taking too narrow a view of free exercise with respect to the practice of faith in public by individuals and trying to define it simply as um, religious expression or private beliefs that don't spill out into public. And it doesn't cover um, public actions pursuant to a religious belief that is expressed. So that's going to get kind of messy um, and kind of interesting. Um, I do think in general that our our judges, whether they be quote-unquote liberal or conservative, are more sensitive to free exercise than our politicians make it seem like they are. They're smarter about these things than um, our politics would lead us to believe. But we still have some thorny issues to sort through as, as we think about allowing everyone to have rights in the public square. Yes, yeah, I, I'm I'm hopeful, as you say, that our judicial system will actually be more inclined to have nuance to this, both the liberal and the conservative justices, than than what we see from legislature at this point. Um, it's kind of unfortunate because it once again seems to be meaning that if anything, we'll see what you were describing earlier, which is that the legislature will codify what the Supreme Court decides as opposed to getting ahead of it and actually dealing with it and legislating like they ought to. Um, but I do hope, and this is, I know we need to move on, but it struck me, I think really what it boils down to, it sure seems to me, is that right now in this particular discussion, we have a category error. We have, on the one hand, uh, the people who would say that that those workers should be compelled to take photography at a same-sex wedding or make, a, or make the cake or whatever are confusing discrimination against a person and a free speech act choosing not to participate in an event or be a part of that event. Um, and what we need to get back to is we need to, have a discussion on how we distinguish between serving customers in a business because a business can't discriminate based on all kinds of different factors, serving a customer and serving a customer in a particular free speech act. Uh, so that, for example, um, if a same sex couple comes in and wants to buy a loaf of bread or wants to buy a, an unmarked wedding cake uh, that's just sitting there already made, and the bakery said, no, that would be discrimination against a person or people. Whereas it seems like what we need to deal with, and this is what makes it where the, the progressive side doesn't want to admit that there's a difference here, but there's a distinct difference versus where you're actually hiring someone to write things on the cake, to take pictures at the, at the wedding, to create a website for the wedding, whatever. 
where they're actually making an act of speech or, or doing an act of art, um, which is a very different thing. And, and it feels to me like if we could make that distinction in our law, we could clear this up in a way that on the one hand would, would prevent genuine discrimination against anyone who just wants to go in and buy a, a loaf of bread versus forcing a baker to actively sanction same-sex weddings. Right. Um, I appreciate those distinctions that you made, and we'll probably have to talk about this more uh, at a later time. And it's our podcast, so we can do whatever we want. Comrade, we need to turn back to our album review that we did last time. We went through... A, a topic very swiftly last time talking all about Taylor Swift's new album Midnight's but what we didn't talk about is something that's very interesting about it which is that 3 hours after it was released it already had an extended cut released the 3 a.m. edition and and so you get seven more songs i i had someone ask the question what happened if you actually bought a physical copy of the original edition that arrived that day, and then you already find out that it's been extended. I, I don't think I've heard of any way that you get the extra tracks. That's unfortunate. But certainly you can go online and, and listen to all the tracks, including the extended 3 a.m. edition, and we wanted to talk a little bit about those additional tracks. Yeah, I um, I didn't want to talk in too much detail about the songs, but I know that you and I are in, in total agreement that the first three tracks on the 3 a.m. version are excellent and they're worth um worth the price of admission as it were for the 3 a.m album and i just appreciated it It deepened um deepened the experience of that record um and they're very melodic the first three songs and so if you had this vibe like oh this is kind of weird and kind of indie when i listened to the original record and then these these extra songs sort of fill it out more and make it feel more like a just a normal Taylor Swift album uh, was the thought that I had. So I, you wanted to add some more to that, I'm sure. So I'll let you do that. Yeah, I'd agree. If you've listened to the album, but you listen to the original album and not the one that was modified three hours later, and if you go on, say, I iTunes or Apple Music or Amazon Music or wherever, you'll find both. Uh, So you may be looking at just the original 13-track album. It's worth going and looking at those seven extra tracks because I actually think, having listened to them, I think they're actually my favorite tracks of the album. Or certainly, um, I'd put those first three tracks of of the 3AM edition up right at the top of my favorites from from the initial albums such as Antihero and Snow on the Beach. Um, I really think The Great War is brilliant. Um, yes, absolutely. It's just that there, there by itself. Uh, also, I want to bring attention to track 19, Would Have, Could Have, Should Have, which is seemingly a revisiting of Swift's earlier Speak Now track, Dear John, I, I presume. It's sh- it surely seems to fit that this is referring to her relationship at, when she was 19 with uh, the much older John Mayer. And uh, it, it's really a, a emotionally powerful track. It's almost draining listening to it, um, talking about the, the age imbalance and power imbalance and, and the and 
the way that can happen to someone who's young and be misused. Um, and, and if you look at the reaction, like if you go on YouTube and, and look at the reaction people are having to that track, it, it's, it, it seems to deeply resonate with a lot of, of people that have been through awful experiences. So it's, it's, it's a really remarkable, I think, track. And I think it's Swift at her deep emotional best. You feel like you're pulled into the chaos of, of that experience. Um, right, fitting perfectly with the topic of songs written when you're awake at night and can't sleep. Right, and even there, in that specific instance, it's it's a mature reflection on yes. the same thing. Where Dear John was sort of this young person um, letting him know that he messed up and that he messed her up. But this is more like, okay, I've emotionally been impacted by this, but I've grown, but I'm I'm still wounded. It's clearly, you know, a 30-something looking back and saying, this wasn't great, but I'm I'm in a better place, even though this still wasn't great. So you, you can hear Taylor Swift is growing, growing up, becoming an adult, an actual adult, we could say. Um, but she's still Taylor Swift, and she still has all those interesting life moments and challenges from her youth, but she's looking back on them and reflecting on them as a now, you know, 32, 33 year old, and then giving us what she has in terms of insight. So yes, it is, it is cool to see, even if it's hard to listen to, in some places like that track you were mentioning. Yeah. I'll throw out just two quick things on that too. Uh, the great war and would have, could have, should have, are two of the, the tracks that Aaron Dessner, uh co-wrote and produced with Swift. And of course he collaborated quite a bit with her on folklore and evermore alongside uh, Antonoff. And I'll, I'll say this. I think I really find especially appealing across those albums the work when Swift collaborates with Dessner. So I really hope that this isn't the end of that collaboration. I'm glad, even though it didn't make it into the original album, that she immediately released it um, because these are, are great, great tracks. I think Dessner seems to just meld very well with Swift in bringing out that emotional impact. And and so that that's exciting to me. Second thing, just real quick, um, I'm going to say would have, could have, should have, on a lighter note, is yet another hint of what we alluded to last time. I really think Speak Now is going to be the next Taylor's version because I can't see much clearer of an Easter egg than having a track that basically is a revisit, uh, what, uh, 10, 11 years later to a track from Speak Now as a hint that that's where we're headed. And as you now, as you know, pardon me, uh, as you know, <laughs> um, before Folklore came out, Speak Now was my favorite Taylor Swift album. So I have to be thrilled if Speak Now is indeed the next Taylor's version of the album to come out um, because it's far and away uh, before Folklore came out. It was my favorite Taylor Swift record. So uh, that's awesome. That'll be amazing. I concur with you on Desner. I think he's simply an interesting person who's lived an interesting life and picking up from the folklore documentary on Disney plus when they did the performance 
film when they played all the way through that album and he got to explain a lot of his work on folklore i said this is an interesting person i gotta listen to more of the stuff from the national and see what this guy's all about i like him um i i sympathize with some of his challenges that he mentions uh during that film and he's just a person that you kind of want to hear more from uh, if you haven't. And that's a good place to be when you're an artist. So, Yes. Well, uh, I'll go ahead and make a prediction as wild as yours last time that the Democrats were going to keep the House, and it may end up being not quite accurate just like that was, but hopefully it will be close, which is, I think, just as um, we saw with Folklore and Evermore, I think it's time that... Uh, Taylor is going to do another album drop that's a little less expected. She did a big marketing ramp up on Midnight's and, of course, on Red Taylor's version. I kind of wonder if Speak Now might just drop more suddenly, and maybe it's going to be sooner rather than later, maybe even by the end of the year or at least by the end of January. So that's that's my prediction. Wow. Okay. Let's hope you're right. I mean, there's... There's no losers in this game. I mean, even if we don't get it right away, we're going to get it sooner or later, and that's good for us. So, yeah. Happy us, one way or the other. Looking forward to it. Well, the weather outside is once again frightful. We've had snow, we've had wind uh, yesterday, on the when, right before we were recording here. Yesterday, it was a wind chill of 16 degrees. It was bitter cold outside. We want to know this time of year, what's the weather going to be like when we go over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house? And so what can you do to find out? You can go to faithtree.com weather. Faithtree.com weather at faithtree.com slash weather is all the weather you want, reliable forecasts around the world, weather maps, 10-day forecast details about precipitation and wind, all these things that you need to know, and you get them without ads and without trackers so that you can just get the weather and you're not going to be sold uh, stuff about the location that you're looking up for the next 10 years because those Google trackers are following you. It's not going to happen with faithtree.com weather, so check it out today, faithtree.com slash weather. We have one more thing today, and that's that we need to turn to God's word and... For our word of the day, let's go ahead and turn to Romans 14 this time. Uh, Jason and I are in the the Faith Tree Men's Bible study together, and we are in Romans 14. And Romans 14, 1 to 5, actually the whole chapter, is, is so an interesting and challenging, I think, in that it speaks to a lot of the issues that we run into in society today. A lot of what we see in our political rhetoric, where we have very little little tolerance for other people and, and where they're coming from and what they're struggling with. And, and something that strikes me here that we were talking about tonight in, in the Bible study was that Paul is saying that we're not going to agree on everything. And if you've been around the church, you know that in the church, people don't agree on everything. And it's challenging us to think of what things do we, on the one hand, Paul has all kinds of instruction in Romans and in his other letters on things we have to have absolute conformity on, that we actually need to hold to about who Jesus is and what the Christian life looks like, but also leaves open some grace for places where we're not going to see eye to eye, 
And in, in this chapter, what's being talked about are those that feel like they, they can eat things that were previously forbidden to the Jews and those who don't. And we have those who feel like they need to observe all the Jewish holy days and those that don't. And in there, there's an appeal not for conformity, but for grace. And I, I think that's a powerful message. Yeah, and I think uh, we could use another word. We could use the word charity or um, divine love. Love. Yes. Um, yeah. As we get First Corinthians 13, when Paul is talking about that over in that letter. So to know that we're united in this one body and that because of that and the fundamental truth of who Jesus is and who he's made us to be through his life, death, and resurrection, some of the smaller things, they may not be small in our individual walk, but they're small with respect to those big things that we were just mentioning, the, the death, the, the death, resurrection, of Christ um, and his incarnation and his being God of very God um, and those types of things. So we're thinking about, uh, do I need to, can I eat meat on this day or can I, uh, um, or do, do I need to fast on this day or is this clean or unclean for me? Am I allowed to, am I allowed to drink alcohol? I mean, it's not listed here, but, these are practical, in practical ways. Uh, let's think of each other first. And then after we think of each other and we regard our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we can claim our rights in Christ. I think, and no offense, but as Americans, we are tempted to say, these are my rights. This is what I deserve. I'm an American citizen. It's my freedom. But Christ gives us a different challenge, and that is, I don't claim my rights and my freedom until I have considered what my brother or my sister wants and needs in the body of Christ. And then after that, I can consider what I would like, what I would prefer, um, what I would wish, even what I would wish in the church, what I would prefer. Maybe worship style, maybe something else, maybe a, a style of preaching, that sort of thing. So it's a great, great challenge because in Romans, he's given us all this great and deep theology of the atonement and of justification by faith and all this stuff. And then it, it hits the road. The rubber hits the road right here in 14. And it's like, if we don't love one another, uh, then it's like we've disregarded everything that Paul said before this. And he just starts talking about practical things. doesn't really give us a whole lot of warning. Um, tells us to respect the governing authorities in 13. And then it jumps into loving one another in practical ways in 14. So um, for, for Paul, this all connects together. And for us... Sometimes we struggle to see that connection and struggle to dispose ourselves to to see the connection and honor the connection between who Jesus is and who our brothers and sisters are in the light of Christ. So, but it's tough. It's tough. But by God's grace, uh, we can we can do it. 
Yeah, amen. It all comes back to God's grace and loving God and loving our neighbor. And if we can focus on that, we can do, we won't get everything right, but we can certainly do an awful lot of good uh, with those two intentions. It, it calls us to to care for our neighbor, but to care for our neighbor in a God-pleasing way, which ultimately is more caring for our neighbor, um, but not to put ourselves first. And certainly something I, I, I think that we struggle with individually, every person struggles with. We struggle with as a church at this point very clearly, but we can do an awful lot of good when we we come back to what God calls us to do. So, uh, so encouraging. And I hope this has been encouraging to you and it may be a good place to, to land uh, the night after talking about a lot of politics and, and some of that it feels like, well, how can I love my neighbor? How can I put my neighbor first? How can I glorify God? How does this all come together? It doesn't necessarily solve all that, but at least shows us the path that we should be going on individually in our day-to-day life where we do have an awful lot of opportunities to show God's love. So um, we hope that you'll join us again next time on Zippy the Wonder Snail. If there's any way we can be an encouragement to you, if you could use prayer, feel free to shoot us an email at zippy at ofb.biz. That's zippy at ofb.biz. And do follow us on all the major podcasting services, whichever one you like to use, whether it's Amazon or, or Apple or Google or whatever else you might use. We're there, and we would love to zip with you there. You don't want to miss a single episode of Two Christian Guys Zipping Through the News and Culture that matter to you. Jason, as always, it's such a joy to get to do this with you. And I hope you have a very happy Thanksgiving, comrade. You too, Tim. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. And and to all of our listeners, happy Thanksgiving. We will see you again very, very soon.